Greetings, film fans. We miss you. Welcome into the Second Day Film Podcast. It's the official podcast of the Second Day Film Club. It is Wednesday, October 13th, 2021. I'm Brandon Champion here with my good pal, Mike Nichols. Uh, what the heck is going on, man? It's been way too long since we've done this. Yeah, we've. I've seen a lot of movies. We're not even going to get to review all of them. I've watched a lot of TV shows. We might not get to review all those in this time either, but... We've got a lot of stuff for you, and so much stuff is finally coming out. Theaters are opening up, and we were just talking, this is a huge boom for movies. We don't really see this many movies coming out often in October in the fall, but we've got so many big movies coming out now. We've got Bond, we've got Dune, we've got so many others coming out. It's crazy. Yeah, it's been fun, man. Honestly, you know, and you combine it with the the movies that go straight to streaming now. And I just got back from the theater. I just went and saw uh, Chung Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, which we'll be reviewing at the end of today's pod. And uh, man, it's just great to be in the theater, man. You just cannot replicate it. Uh, just the the distraction free environment, the big screen, the 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 next level popcorn, like. Uh, you know, seeing things in the movies is just great. And I love that we have films that are still coming out only in theaters because it forces you to go and watch movies how you're supposed to see them. And I have to say, champ, as much as I love those movie theaters that back in Grand Rapids, Michigan, I will say living in Austin, Texas now, Alamo Drafthouse movies are so fun. I love seeing movies at Alamo. You can get food, you can get drinks. Everyone's really quiet, really respectful. The seats are amazing. It's just, oh, Alamo is such a great theater to watch it at. What's your favorite theater to go watch movies at, buddy? (laughs) I mean, I like to go to Studio Park downtown in GR. They have the big comfy seats there, too. It's kind of like a schwankier uh, celebration. So um, it's fun. I liked it. I enjoyed it. But uh, I I told you, I said, uh, you know, last pot that I was going to start asking you guys. uh, Oh, Evan's not here, by the way, in case you couldn't tell. Uh, I guess I guess the two month break wasn't long enough for him. So uh, he needs a little bit longer. You know, this pod's uh, going to be a lot less intelligent and classy tonight. (laughs) Uh, I don't know, but we are going to review one of the films he made us review and he's not even here. So uh, shame on you, Evan. But yeah, he plans on being back here again. But uh, anyways, back to my original point. I said I was going to start asking you guys random questions off the top here, Mike. So are you ready for your popcorn quiz? Yeah, I mean, it's hard without Evan, of course, but I'll carry on. But yeah, emotionally, Evan, I just want you to know it's it's really... It's not the same being the only emotionally intelligent person on the show anymore. And I really uh-huh. miss it. Uh-huh. Very funny. Uh, we'll see who's laughing at. We'll see who's laughing after this. Give me your favorite Michael Keaton performance. Favorite Michael Keaton performance. Oh, off the top of my head. I mean, yep. how can you not, how can you not say, you know, Batman? How can you not say Batman? You think he was a good Batman? I think he was a great Batman. I'll, oh, actually, you know what? No. Okay, because because Michael Keaton's not personally my favorite Batman. I'm not saying he's a bad Batman. He's just not my Batman. Lo- love you, uh, Kevin. Uh, Kevin. Kevin's my Batman. Uh, also, Christian Bale's that live action one. But uh, yeah, so uh, Kevin Conroy, by the way, the animated series Batman. Uh, right. Okay, so yes. Uh, okay, Kevin Conroy and Christian Bale are my Batman. Thank you. All right. So <laughs> in terms of Michael Keaton, I really loved his performance in Birdman. I thought that was amazing. I thought he did yeah. amazing in Birdman. Birdman was a really good yeah. movie too. I mean, he, he was nominated for every award in the book in that one. So uh, I think that that's a good answer. Uh, I was also going to throw out the, um, I think he's great in spotlight as the editor, or the lead oh, of spotlight yeah. uh, sort of like, uh, I thought he was fantastic in that. So um, yeah, I'll go with that. Spotlight is my second favorite <laughs> journalism movie of all time. Number one being almost famous. Anyway, we got a show to do. Let's jump into it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We got plenty to review today. Uh, if you could please like, rate, and review the podcast, check us out on Facebook, Twitter. You can get our old episodes. We've had a lot of them on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Check it out, people. We love to uh, interact with you. And if you're uh, Alamo, and if you're Alamo Draft House, I will shamelessly plug you for free tickets and do anything. I will. I will sell myself out so I can. Please get free stuff from you. So, you know, <laughs> Mike has no shame. No All shame. Right, let's... <laughs> no egos here. <laughs> All right. Let's get into it, shall we? Uh, let's, let's see. First film we're going to review. It's uh, came out a while ago. It's called Reminiscence. Yeah. Uh, reminiscence. Yeah. Let's reminisce on Reminiscence, Mike. Let's uh, do it. Reminiscence. About... So, oh, I'm so sorry. Please go ahead. It's See, we're lost without Evan. We're just lost. Can I him. can I host the show, please? Yeah, uh, I guess. It's your show. Okay. Evan. Okay. Remind uh, us. 
with all caps texts. I'm just kidding. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. But. Whoa. <laughs> uh, okay. Reminiscence. It's directed by Lisa Joy, who's also one of the co-creators of Westworld. Uh, it tells the story of Nick Bannister, a private investigator of the mind who navigates the alluring world of the past when his life is changed by a new client, May. A simple case becomes an obsession after she disappears and he fights to learn the truth about her. Uh, this film stars Hugh Jackman, Rebecca Ferguson, Tondi Newton, um, amongst other people. Um, directed by Lisa Joy, as I said, along with Jonathan Nolan, her husband, uh, created Westworld. And Mike, uh, you get a lot of Westworld vibes in this movie, I would say. Um, so, uh, Mike, you're going on a journey, a journey mm. through memory. Yes. You've been there before. To get there, you just have to follow my voice. So are you ready to go? Yes, Hugh Jackman channeling Don Draper, I am. <laughs> so right off the top, uh, one of my favorite things about this movie, honestly, and maybe it's a bad thing, is right off the jump, uh, I love the setup of this movie. Um, the drone sort of flyover footage of sunken Miami uh, with Hugh Jackman's voiceover. Uh, is pretty cool. I think there's a really cool premise and setup, and I, I was getting a lot of sort of uh, Minority Report, Inception vibes, but the setting where like Miami is basically sinking because of climate change uh, is both terrifying and interesting. You've got like this region of the city called the Sunken Coast, and uh, this idea um, I think in the movie is even though we're really mostly in Miami, I think the idea is probably that this is going on everywhere in the coastal cities and the dry lands where the, the land barons are keeping the water out. I just think like the world that we're thrust into right off the jump um, is, is very interesting. Yes. Yeah. It's a very interesting take on what the world could look like in the next, you know, 50 years or so and uh it's a really well-built world too like i have to say everything within it stayed consistent to it and it was good sci-fi in the way that it told a very human story in the sci-fi setting it didn't focus too much on like the land barons or you know how the buildings are adjusting to the water rise like it just it really gave you a great sci-fi setting that was very interesting but then honed in on the characters the whole time which is what a lot of good sci-fi usually does yeah, just like the line that like the water ro waters rose and war broke out. I mean, that's chilling when you think about it. I mean, especially living here in Michigan, uh, you know, we're surrounded by water. You, you know, you're in here in Texas. Parts of Texas are by the by the ocean and the Gulf. So, uh, I mean, it's just a, a scary thought to to think about. And obviously, climate change, uh, big topic, big debate today among some people who refuse to acknowledge its existence. Uh, but uh, you know, that's a whole other topic. But so some people who have, you know, if you're not if you're not going to buy into climate change, you're one of these people that. Uh, like to deny its existence, you're probably not going to like this setup. But I, for one, found it to be pretty, pretty interesting. So what what else did you like or dislike about this movie, Mike? Um, I liked that it did a good job paying tribute to the noir film genre. Like there's a lot in this movie that is like very much tributes to things like Maltese Falcon and, you know, other famous noir films where, um, you know, you have Hugh Jackman's character and, you know, he's hunting after Rebecca Ferguson's character. But, you know, everyone's got that like kind of, you know, dry, bitter, cynical, like noir feel. And even the look, there's there's a lot of like uh, 30s and 40s, like, you know, designs and, um, you know, lighting even sometimes thrown in there. Uh, I, I thought it was a good tribute to noir. I will say, though, that I think that there was a little weakness to that at some points, like it it tried very much to give you this harsh reality and yet the way it did soft lighting with spacious beautiful settings and the way it just made it so cinematic it did kind of detract a little from the feel of hey this is a harsh gritty real world um those two things kind of felt juxtaposition of harsh gritty like you know no one can trust each other everything's war people die and yet you look and everything is just kind of so pretty and well lit and like almost has a very magical feel to it. So I thought sometimes the look of it detracted from the themes and the messaging and also like just the, the harshness of the setting itself. But overall, it was still a really beautiful movie to watch. It's very enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, 
this isn't apparent from the start of the movie, but ultimately it is a love story, right? I mean, that's ultimately what it is. Similar to Inception, uh, similar, you know, not similar to Minority Report, the two movies I mentioned. Uh, I mean, it, it it's really it comes down to like this guy trying to use all the means necessary to find his lost love and he can't get over it. Um, but that through that uh, plot device, uh, you got some really interesting ideas about like, I really love the idea that like you could become addicted to the past or yes. you could like overdose on better days and not coming to terms with reality uh, because of the technology allowing you, allowing you to sort of just get lost in better days. And the idea that like that itself could become a drug, like Hugh Jackman's character is getting lost in it and addicted to it. And his friends trying to Tondi Newton's trying to pull him out of it. Um, and it's just, I like that I that idea that like Hugh Jackman is literally haunted by his past to the point that he literally cannot escape it because he's going back and reliving it and just canceling out his own reality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's powerful themes in here about, um, you know, the past, uh, you know, the, the, even just the word reminiscence to reminisce. Um, it's definitely a take um, like a very modern sci fi take on on the Greek uh, story of Orpheus and Eurydice. Like they're very. They, they mentioned the story a lot and even the way the whole, you know, him trying to get her back is, is very much an echo of that story. You can definitely tell that Lisa Joy put a lot of um, thought into this. Uh, you can tell she really, I don't know. You can tell like a lot of her heart is in this movie. And I think it's really cool to see her get a chance. I really want to see more stuff from her now. Um, you know, she's obviously known for Westworld and, you know, she's, she's connected some really, talented uh film filmmakers like jonathan nolan her husband and you know christopher nolan therefore her brother-in-law but i think she kind of stood out on her own a little bit here without them and that was great i i was really impressed and i really want to see more stuff from her um love the line we'll be fine watts nostalgia never goes out of style and that is actually really a fantastic line and so true uh we love nostalgia on this pod that's for sure and we love getting lost in nostalgic movies um in terms of things i didn't like uh I think the action scenes were lacking in this uh, for the most part. I didn't think they were shot great. And honestly, like that's sort of a, a critique I've had of Westworld in the past as well. I mean, no one's watching Westworld for the action, particularly in seasons two and three. Uh, the action in Westworld, I think, is a little bit lacking. It's kind of chaotic the way it's staged. I'm not sure Lisa Joy has the best feel for filming action. Maybe you disagree, but um, that, that's sort of something I've noticed both through Westworld and in this. Um, I just... I just don't really buy into it uh, as much. It doesn't feel like you're really within the scene um, as much as like some other action movies I've seen. And the villain and bad guy in this movie sucks. It, it's basically just like a generic henchman. Uh, I don't really find it that compelling. Uh, the land bear and stuff, while it's an interesting premise, I'm not sure they really de uh, deliver on the execution in the movie. Um, so those would be a couple critiques I have. And then, uh, I'm not sure what the message ultimately is here because the film seems to be warning against Hugh Jackman getting lost in the past the whole time. Mm -hmm. Like it's bad for you to be in there, living in there the whole time. You need to face your reality. Um, but then Nick ultimately does it anyway at the end and they sort of play it off. Like it's like a redemptive good arc. So I felt like there was a little bit of mixed messaging there. Yeah. I, I think that there was some slowness in the film and that like the lack of, maybe likable characters not, not that they're not interesting but they're just not that relatable i guess i would say and and sometimes that made you not really care as much or worry about as much as what's going to happen to them and it did kind of slow it down a little bit uh for me um and just there's a lot of like slow motion of not even no i'm sorry no, it's not it's not Zack snyder it's not slow motion but it's just there's long scenes with uh you know hugh jackman and rebecca ferguson just kind of like being in love and like just looking very seriously and yeah. saying very serious, very cinematic. Yeah. And it's very cinematic and it looks great, but it's just kind of a little slow. Like, yeah. so yeah, I would say that that was kind of a, a one, one thing that detracted from the film. I would overall give it a B. Yeah, I'm at a six out of 10. I thought there was an interesting setup. There's some interesting ideas going on here. It's an interesting movie to look at. Um, ultimately, the story comes up a little short for me, and I, I wish that we could have had a little bit more compelling and, again, the mixed messaging. But uh, overall, an, an interesting and thought-provoking sci-fi watch, I would say. 
Um, so let's move on to our next film. Uh, we're going to dip into horror here. Uh, Evan Dean suggested we review this movie, and he's not even here. It's called Malignant. It's directed by his boy, James Wan. Uh, Madison is paralyzed by shocking visions of grisly murders, and her torment worsens as she discovers these walking, waking dreams are, in fact, terrifying realities. Uh, Annabelle Wallace, who I know from Peaky Blinders, is uh, leading the charge in this movie here. Uh, Maddie Hansen plays her sister. George Young plays Kikoa Shaw, a detective investigating, along with Regina Moss. Uh, those are kind of your four main players. You've got a, a, an extended cast here. Um, so, Mike, I know you're not a big horror guy, uh, but you did agree to watch this movie uh, under Evan's suggestion. Uh, so we appreciate that. Uh, so... You know, I don't know how you're going to going to take this, but um, I thought it at least started cool with a creepy hospital in the northwest somewhere. Waves crashing against the rocks. Uh, it's a creepy setup. And then we go from there. But uh, give me a take on Malignant. Well, not to brag, <laughs> but I guess the ending. <laughs> oh, fantastic. about halfway through, I started to they kind do of give you some hints there. what was going yeah. on. I guess the <laughs> ending. So. I beat the movie. I won. <laughs> Didn't scare me. Congratulations. Um, no, yeah. Like, I actually thought in, in, in terms of, I don't know, how much of the plot should we give away? Then give away what, what the killer and the monster really is. I think we talk about it, man. I'm okay with, uh, here's a spoiler warning for all the movies we're talking about. Uh, I guess we sort of talked about reminiscence in vague terms. But I think with this one, we got to be able to talk about the, uh, the twist. So spoilers <clears throat> for the next three movies uh, that we're going to talk about. So now we're clear. We've given the warning. We're good to go. So go ahead. So the killer is her evil like twin that's actually like a tumor. That was like sharing the same brain and like spinal cord on her back. And then they operate it and they got like all the tumor out except for like the brain. So it's still like this like tumor human like monster creature thing. <laughs> and it's like going around killing people. But it's not really clear what these things powers are because it's yeah, it's a it's a little like evil twin like tumor thing. And yet it like somehow has superpowers. Like it can like climb up everything. It can like disappear in smoke. It's super strong. I, I don't really know what this thing is or how it has its powers. It can make pacemakers explode. Yeah. Like <laughs> the electricity some... stuff. Okay. So here, here's the thing. There's a lot of moments where it's like set up to scare you, whatever, but it's, it's not clear what this thing's powers are. Like, how can it, how can it control electricity? How can it like, because lights are changing and flickering and it's doing these things. It like is tying people up. Uh, like it has perfect throwing aim with knives and like everything. All right. Well, well, Mike, it is a horror film. Let's suspend so, belief a little bit here. Let's suspend so, belief a little bit. It's a horror film. Uh, tell me, give me, give me, like, okay. So I felt it was a painfully average horror film for most of it uh, until we got to the twist. Like the twist is silly. You just described it, but. I thought it's pretty, it's a little bit terrifying, you know, like to think that like the film's called malignant and you have like this malignant tumor that is essentially like another person, like a Siamese twin that's growing on your body, but it's more like a parasite than something that's working mutually with your body. I mean, it was a pretty, uh, pretty awesome reveal, uh, in terms of horror. I mean, like when we see the monster emerge, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty scary. I mean, it's pretty jarring. Yeah, it is. It is. It was very interesting stunt work, the way and the way they filmed it. So basically, it was just someone moving backwards the whole time, with a face on their the back of their head because um, he's controlling her body. Yeah, so that was an interesting way that they shot it. I thought it was it was shot very well. But I yeah, thought like, so too. This thing is just crazy. Like it's it's like oh I've I've had no life. I'm just this little tumor monster twin, and then it's like taking out an entire police department like the matrix that was amazing i'm sorry <laughs> that scene when when she's killing all the people in the cell like in a dark and twisted way and then she you know it's like the worst thing to happen to a police station since the terminator showed up but like it's like like in a dark and twisted way that was amazing it was i thought it was really well choreographed that whole sequence when she's just taking dudes out i mean I, for a horror film i thought that was pretty uh well done 
Yeah, it was very it was very well shot. I think James Wan is a very talented uh, filmmaker, and he definitely brought a lot of really good cinematics to uh, a very um, uh, simple little tale. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, uh, there's James Wan has his stuff all over this. I mean, he's behind he's the guy behind Saw and Insidious Aquaman. and. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I wasn't gonna put Aquaman in this category, but yeah, like, uh, like you have like that crazy, overpowering score that plays off the jump. It's almost like this ele- eerie, electronic, in-your-face stuff, which is like, which is very James Wan style, and that's very much how this movie is in your face, like crazy. Um, so I, I kind of like that. Uh, you know, the. The storytelling, like how this how this story unfolds is pretty is pretty bad, I think. Like there's a lot of tropes, whether it's like a lot of exposition, right? Like whether the mom spewing exposition or like uh the cops standing over a dead body spewing exposition, or why can everyone always find like files in a basement from decades in the past? Like they're always conveniently labeled. You got like VHS tapes that are conveniently labeled. Like there's just a lot of exposition that is just sort of like thrown up at us throughout the movie and it's just kind of like i don't know it feels like a lot of cheating you as an esteemed screenwriter might disagree with me uh yeah i don't know about a screenwriter or esteemed but uh yeah <laughs> i <laughs> yeah i just i you know these are not my kind of movies and that's fine for everyone who's enjoy who enjoyed this movie and who likes horror movies good for you like that's that's great i like a lot of dumb things that you know i'm sure you don't like and that's fine so i have to admit these these are not my favorite kind of movies to review or watch because i do find like just just so much just like all the things that people talk about oh you see how in movies it's so not realistic because that would never really happen like this is the kind of movie that does all those things where you know the characters just don't call each other on the phone before they just drive somewhere miles and miles away in the middle of the dark in the middle of the night and just walk into this abandoned weird place alone at night it's like <laughs> yeah why would you who in their right mind does like no one does that especially when you're trying to search for a killer it's like hey maybe i'll just go in here alone in the dark at night and not bring a cell phone or let the cop who's my friend know where i'm going like it's just the characters make decisions that None of us would be making if this was really happening to us, but that's okay. It's a horror movie, and yeah, like it, it was and anything movie. that it, anything that is supposed to be abandoned is never like looks abandoned in horror movies, <laughs> which is hilarious. So thematically, uh, one thing worked and one different one didn't for me. The stuff she talks in the movie all the time about like needing a blood connection and searching for a blood connection. That's why she was trying to have all these babies that Gabriel was eating. And then like, you know, she has this moment at the end where she's like talking to her adopted sister and is like, you were there all along. I just found it really heavy, heavy handed. And I wasn't really feeling it emotionally. Um, But one thing I did pick up on that I thought was actually pretty interesting. And I think I saw some other people talking about this too is, that this movie and Gabriel is sort of like a, a symbolic or commentary on a woman being in control of her own body. It's obviously something very timely, particularly, you know, in Texas where you live, Mike, but like uh, the idea that like um, she has like lots of lines about how, about control and how you don't get to control me anymore. And I'm in control. And she literally like locks Gabriel up at the end. And Madison is like dealing with it the entire film where it's like, men making decisions for her, whether it's like the docs, uh, you know, experimenting on her or, uh, or um, the abusive husband who's doing things early in the movie. Or then at the end when Gabriel literally is controlling her. And then at the end, she's finally able to make her own choice. So I did think there maybe, maybe that's looking into it too much, but it feels like there's, it's like a purposeful commentary on, you know, women getting to decide what they want to do with their own body, because there's literally a malignant tumor attached to her in this movie and it's sort of like a literal representation of that what do you think about that uh yeah that, that's a that's a solid interpretation um yeah i, I, <laughs> I support that view. i guess i didn't really think about it as deeply as you did but that i'm impressed and proud of you that you did you <laughs> that's what i'm known for there mike yeah yeah it says i'm not emotionally complex come on look at this give right, me i give this i give this movie a c plus the, the shootout scene was cool. It was just ridiculous. I gave it a 7 out of 10. I quite enjoyed it. I enjoyed it more than I thought I would, to be honest with you. 
uh, I think that might might be go for you as well, actually. Mm. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, going straight from horror to something that is not horror uh, is a uh, well, I guess it's a series now because there's going to be season two, but uh, it's called The White Lotus. It's a comedy drama just aired on HBO Max. It's set in a tropical resort and follows the exploits of various guests and employees over the span of a week. This was created by Mike White, who I know as the uh, real Ned Schneebly, but of course he's known for more than that. But that's just what I remember him from being in School of Rock. Uh, fantastic, pitch-perfect cast in this show, man. Uh, Murray Bartlett, Connie Britton, Jennifer Coolidge, Alexander De- Alexandra Daddario, uh, Fred Hischlinger, Jake Lacey, Brittany O'Grady, Natasha Rothwell, Sydney Sweeney, Steve Zahn. Uh, so just uh, this cast is, I, I think it's one of the strengths of this show, Mike. Um, and, uh, you know, the show, if we're going to describe it, I would say it's, uh, you know, the backdrop is that it's a murder mystery at this hotel, but it's really a character study and a social satire more than a mystery. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would definitely agree that it is very much a social satire. Um, and yeah, that cast just, oh man, so good. I would not be surprised if we see some Emmy nods to this cast, like particularly to Jennifer Coolidge who did an amazing job taking a role that really could have like in different hands, that role could have been like very, very obnoxious or very, very like non-sympathetic. And yet she did such a good job of making you think this woman is so obnoxious, but yet so helpless and pitiable at the same time. And yet then when she, you know, gets back into her rich, her rich drama, you're like, Oh, like you're so disappointed and, and sad for her too. It's she did such a good job. I think Jennifer Coolidge had an incredible performance in this show. I really liked Murray Bartlett as Armand, the hotel manager. I thought he was another standout. Um, and then also, you know, Sydney Sweeney and um, um, what's her name? The girl O'Grady. Brittany uh, O'Grady. Yeah. Brittany O'Grady. Uh, I mean, they're sort of like the nuts and bolts of what the show is, right? They're like, they're so nihilistic and cynical and just like deplorable people who are like fake reading, like cynical, wary worldview books and like trying to, they pretty much symbolize like what the whole show is about, which is basically uh, a social commentary on, you know, rich people and how they basically screw everything up for uh everyone and the consequences of their actions uh while they aren't necessarily punished all the time uh there's always consequences for their actions and it's usually the people who are in a less fortunate situation than them who are facing the consequences um so like uh like I just love the show. It's like, it, this show is like so hard to describe. It's like deliciously devious, right? Like these characters are all despicable, deplorable people for the most part. And they're pretty much that way throughout the whole show. Like they might learn like little lessons about each other at the end, but ultimately I don't think any of them have any plans for changing their behavior uh, moving forward, despite the dire consequences that happen throughout the show. Yeah. I would say in terms of like HBO shows, cause HBO has been doing a lot of shows about like, you know how rich people just have everything and they're in paradise and they can't be happy, which is exactly what this show is. But HBO has been doing a lot of shows like that recently. I would say this, the kind of satirical comedy drama that this feels like, if you like HBO's succession, this very much feels like it's set in the succession universe. Almost like this could be, you could almost believe that these would be people who would know the Roy's or something. And they're just on vacation um yeah so it it follows like a different like a a group of people who have all come to the white lotus hotel here in this like hawaii resort and there are just all these rich people who are in a paradise and they just can't be happy one person is upset about the room it's just not the room they got and it's not good enough to be their room and so then there's this whole ordeal with trying to get the room Another person is there because they're 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 scared uh, scatter their their mother's ashes, and the whole thing is just a decompression of death. And you know, and my like my mom died. No, no one loves me. And you know, they're being surrounded by everyone at the every every staff member doing everything that they want, and yet they feel so unloved and unwanted, even though they're just being like showered with with generosity. And then you've got this family, like, you know, amazing job by Connie Britton and uh, Steve Zahn. It's these parents who, you know, they're, they're very wealthy. They're, they have great jobs. And yet 
they just kind of can't get away from work. They, they won't really unplug and they're kind of spoiled, but like also kind of bitter children are, you know, just jaded with who their parents really are and what they really do with their lives and how they've impacted the world. And instead, and yeah, they're, they're kind of rightly judging their parents for the flaws that they've had, but yet the kids are also demonstrating all their own flaws too. And mm-hmm. it's a really, really tough look at how wealth kind of corrupts and also the blind spots that it puts on you um, to, where, to where you almost just can't really have empathetic happiness anymore at certain points. Uh, that's obviously not every rich person ever, but this, this is a very good take on that kind of wealth and those kind of people in that trap that you can get caught in when you're rich. They're so unap- unapologetically like awful. Like, the mystery in the end doesn't really matter that much. You get the sense that like life at the resort is just going to go on. We see a new manager waving his hand and Armand's not even like a second thought. And it's like, you just get the feeling that this shit is just going to keep going on over and over again. Um, and, and speaking of shit, Oh man. Oh yeah. Gross. This gross, show, had, this is like, I think maybe the first time, I mean, we've seen shows where there's shit and we've seen, <laughs> we've seen, actors like faces when the characters are pretending to take a shit i don't know if we've ever just seen a character shit and you just see it plop right out like that granted (laughs) it was fake the the actor (laughs) did not really take a real shit in front of a camera but it looks just like that that was not i've never seen that in a show it was pretty uh pretty wild that they went there I you get the sense throughout this whole show, right? That like, and that's one of the crazy things that happen. But you get the sense that like, things are just building and building in the show. And and I think something that really helps that is the score, where you get like this chaotic, overbearing, almost like nonsensical tropical music that's like being played the whole time. Like, huh, huh, yeah, huh, you know, like this weird like, and it, it just it just feels it helps. Yeah, it helps create like this chaotic atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And makes the audience feel like we're sitting in like a like a pot of boiling water and it's just going to blow. And ultimately it does. But I think the music really helps to sort of create that atmosphere where we're just watching all these ridiculous things happening with these rich people and the people working in the hotel. And, you know, my sister, like she worked out in Alaska dealing with like tourists on like big cruise ships coming in from like Scandinavia and stuff. And she would talk about like how annoying, like some of them could be like dealing with them on these tours, but you like have to be nice to them because it's your job. And like, they will likely tip well because they're very rich. So you have to like put on this fake face and just the, the way that the, the workers in the hotel, like Armand and Belinda act, and then the way that they talk about the guests behind closed doors compared to like how they act frontwardly and facing the people just feels like it's a really realistic portrayal of what probably goes on at resorts like this. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. Like there's definitely a lot of realism in as much as it is as, as it is a comedy drama. There's a lot of realism in like the resort world. And, and, uh, and yeah, I couldn't agree more about the music. It's amazing. I've listened to the music a lot since the show. Like I'll just have it on in the background, like while I'm working or writing something, it's just, it's such good mood setter. It's, and they they do a great job of not only making like a darker theme to like the light Hawaiian music, but then they just straight out have some moments where they just, they'll do like the Hawaiian hymn and it's beautiful. They have like a beautiful choir and it's just incredible. The music and the scenery is always really good too. The way they shoot it, they always give you these really beautiful scenes of Hawaii and, and like the water coming over the rocks and stuff. And yet there's always a darkness in it and it's really uh-huh. eerie in the way they do it. They make, they make Hawaii seem chilling in, in a very like unwelcoming way. And it's just, it's beautifully shot. It's beautifully, uh, you know, done with the music. It's beautifully acted. It's just a great show. I'm yeah. so impressed with what they, how they pulled this off. And they did it all during COVID. Like all the cast was there. Like, and then they're like, well, we can't leave now. So they just had to stay at this beautiful resort and get stuck there. Oh, bummer. Them. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I give them a lot of props for pulling off a show like this in the middle of the pandemic. Very timely, very timely message. Cristobal Tapia Devere is the who did the music for this. Um, and yeah, you mentioned that like the the at the same time you have this chaotic mu- music, but at times 
you have like these amazing visuals, this beautiful, beautiful scenery. And Mike, I think that's really like purposeful because you're contrasting uh, between the serenity and the calm of the natural tropical paradise, you know, with the trees and the waves and the beach. And you contrast that with the chaos that is constantly going on within the walls of the White Lotus. So it's like this purposeful uh, sort of and that also is relates to the commentary on, you know, um, uh, you know, colonization and how we basically stole the land from the Hawaiians to put up the hotel. And th that's discussed within the the, the plot of the show. So um, there's just a lot of parallels to those dynamics. Um, and uh, it was just really fun, really well done. Um, you know, no one really learns anything. The rich people's mistakes are going to have dire consequences other than maybe Quinn, the, the brother. Yeah. who sort of learns to become one with uh, ditches screens and become one with the culture. Um, but, you know, there's nothing to say that his family isn't going to turn right around and go get him. So I don't yeah. know if even that ends on a happy note. But uh, this was a really fun show, even if you're pretty much constantly uncomfortable watching it. Uh, I thought it was a fantastic show. It's going to be an anthology series now, so we're going to get more of this. Uh, but I gave it an 8.5 out of 10. What about you? I give it an A. Uh, so would definitely recommend the white Lotus. Uh, there's going to be another series coming with different characters. Um, but definitely would recommend this first season. Uh, nice work. Mike white, fantastic job created, written and directed this show. So, uh, clearly a vision passion project, Mike white, nice work, buddy. Ned nice Schneebly work. knocked it out of the park. Way to go. <laughs> yeah, Mike white. All right, let's move on to the main event of today's podcast, the second day film podcast here on October 13th, 2021. Uh, staying up late for you tonight, actually. Uh, it's uh, almost 11 o'clock here in the Eastern time zone. But uh, hey, I'm happy to talk movies. We've got to fit it in when we can. It had been too long. Uh, but let's move on. We're going to talk about Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. It is the latest film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It is directed by Destin Daniel Cretton. Uh, Shang-Chi, the master of weaponry-based kung fu, is forced to confront his past after being drawn into the Ten Rings organization. Um, I, I, I don't want to mess up these people's names by saying them, but it's a very fantastic cast. A lot of great uh, Asian and Asian-American actors that you will definitely recognize. Um, but, Mike, I've been looking forward to this film. I just got back from the theater watching it, as I mentioned, off the top of the show. Um, and man, oh man, did I love this movie. Holy crap. Might be one of my favorite in the MCU. Um, when sitting there reflecting on it, you know, it's like, it's, it's very much a mixture of like classic urban martial arts films, but also it has like those fantasy elements that we love in the MCU, um, which sort of through the fantasy elements, it sort of allows, uh, the film to sort of enhance Chinese culture and the mythology in the region. Um, so like this film was, it was sort of like, I didn't know what to expect going in, but you got a little different, uh, flavors of genres mixed in with this one. And it was a very different feel than a lot of the movies we've seen in the MCU so far. Yeah. I loved this movie. I, I definitely agree with you that it's probably one of my favorite in the MCU and, and, and for like an intro movie, like, like, you know, you get Captain America, first Avenger, you get the first Thor, the first Iron Man. Like these are the intro movies where they're introducing a character. Uh, in terms of intro movies, too, I think this was genuinely one of their best intro movies to a character. Uh, it really sets up, uh, you know, Sean, or, sorry, Shang-Chi, and it really sets up who he is, what he wants to do, what his struggles are, why we root for him. And, you know, it's just such a well done introduction story that kind of stands alone, too. And I think that's one of the things I loved about it most is I love the Marvel movies. I love the MCU but sometimes they have to tie in so much that it detracts from the individual story because, you know, they're trying to set up three other movies or they're trying to work on all these other characters here so that, you know, it can all stay connected to the bigger universe. And I think they have to do that understandably sometimes to make it all work and tie it all in. But sometimes it does get a little overwhelming when it feels like the story or the character development is, is maybe, getting shoved to the back burner or the plot sometimes has to take a major leap just so they can shove in this tie end, this other thing for this other plot. And it's nice when there's a movie that's just all kind of on its own. Yeah. There's connections to Dr. Strange or yeah, there's connections to other things, but like this movie just kind of stands as its own movie. And that's, what's so awesome and fun to watch about it. 
Yeah, I mean, you get cameos. You get the abomination from from way back in the Incredible Hulk. We have you know Wong from from uh, Doctor Strange. You get Trevor Slattery um, from from uh, uh, Iron Man three. But but none of those cameos feel like forced. Like they feel like they work within the framework of the story in this film. Um, so I mean, it, I think it uh, it makes sense. I mean, we even get a callback that you know uh, the the villain in this movie uh, Wen Wu was the guy who was the actual Mandarin behind the plot in Iron Man 3. So we actually yeah. get like answers and connections, but they feel organic to the MCU and nothing feels forced. But uh, I mean, the first thing you're going to notice, I have some thematic stuff that I want to talk about, but the, the, the hand-to-hand combat in this movie, and I guess we should expect it for a film that's set in Asia and is clearly trying to channel, you know, classic Kung Fu movies, but the hand-to-hand combat and the choreography, the fight choreography in this movie is next level. I mean, like, I, it's uh, like John Wick, the John Wick series is a movie that I think has amazing fight choreography. Um, this was definitely on par or better than it. And it's probably some of the best we've ever seen in the MCU. Yeah. I mean, this, this fighting is up there with like anything you'll watch in winter soldier or captain America civil war. Like it's just, this is so well done on every level. And, and what's great about it too, is that it works because you care about these characters. Like when they're, when they're fighting, when they're in trouble, when they're, you know, when they're doing flips or like jumping around or, or like this incredible hand-to-hand choreography, you, you care about the choreography because you care about the characters who are, you know, doing this choreography and you really care about the character of Sean and you really care about Aquafina's character and you really just get into wanting to watch them. Want, you, they have great banter. Another thing they did was they kind of toned down some of that Disney, the Disney humor that kind of gets forced in sometimes and the jokes didn't undercut the moments like, and it was just, it was just very more adult realistic like humor and it felt really just natural to watch. And it was greatly delivered by, um, you know, the performances of Aquafina and, Oh no, I'm really sorry. I'm going to say his name wrong. I'm sorry. Simu Lu. I, I'm really sorry. Shimu is it? I, I apologize. Sorry, dude. I don't know how to say your name right. My bad. <laughs> that's why I avoided it off the top. I was still yeah. afraid. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's because this film is grounded in family, right? I mean, it's like yeah. uh, you have this idea of, of family being at the, the center of the entire story. I mean, it's like it's really, really smart. It sort of anchors the film with this uh, emotional core and it's really, really effective. And that's where the themes come in, right? You get um, you know, sort of, there's a lot of themes of legacy and things that are passed down through generations and families. Um, you know, like there's so many examples, like uh, Shang-Chi eventually defeats his dad with lessons he learned from his mom. You know, his dad obviously passed lessons down by making him a, a killer. And that's something Shang-Chi has to come to terms with him. You know, his, he gets taught mercy from his mom. And then we see his dad literally pass the rings down to him in his last moment. So a lot of the film is about Shang-Chi coming to terms with who he is and accepting the good and bad of his own legacy. I mean, like the first, the first line of the film is about uh, the legend of the 10 rings, which is passed down from generations to generations. One yeah. of the last scenes in the movie is Aquafina and Simu Lu telling the story of their exploits to their friends. So like right. this idea that yeah. stories are passed down uh, through generations and, and that family uh, sort of has a responsibility for things and how you are a part of everything that came before you. And that's very explicitly spelled out in the film. But, you know, the way that that is uh, portrayed in the movie is great. And, uh, you know, I also know that that's like a huge theme within Asian culture as well. So it's good to see um, that sort of tied in to Shang-Chi and the, and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which is the first Marvel movie to feature an Asian-American protagonist. Yeah, and there was a lot too that I'm sure, like we didn't pick up on that's probably tied into Chinese mythology and you know things like the colors, like with certain reds or certain yellows, like the meanings that those have. Like you could tell it was there, but because I'm you know just a stupid white American guy, I'm like, oh, I don't really know what that represents. But you can tell a lot of thought was put into all of those kind of details and a lot of care. And a lot of um, you know quality. It was very genuine about that. Without right. we don't need to understand it to know yeah. it was there. Yeah, and there wasn't a lot of chest pumping about it. There wasn't a lot of like, you know, hey, we're the first Asian American. Like they didn't do that because they they just wanted to be themselves, and that I thought was a really cool way to let them be. And I thought it was very honorable 
and it, it showed a lot of honor to Asian Americans and the Asian community that loves the MCU and is in the MCU. And it was good to see that representation. And yeah, this was just a great movie on every level. Yeah, I mean, unique action set pieces. They were so creative, whether it's the fight on the bus or the fight on the side of the building or uh, like everything was just so beautifully shot, whether it was the effects or the scenery or the choreography. Um, you, you have uh, the directors and the cinematographers using light and shadows in some of these hand-to-hand combat fights. Um, you know, I, I loved the first fight between the mom and dad. It, it felt more like a dance than a fight. And it felt like we were channeling some like hidden tiger or uh, hit, uh, crouching shoot, tiger hidden dragon. Crouching tiger hidden dragon. I was getting some vibes from that. And like, like... This whole film was just beautiful, man. I will say the one thing that always slowed it down for me, the character of Trevor Slattery. I've never really found that character to be that enjoyable to watch. I don't I think Ben Kingsley is an amazing actor. Um, but yeah, like and I, I don't even mind the idea of them like doing a terrorist who's really an actor. And so I think that's actually a very clever villain. People were so it, mad about that. In yeah, I don't know if it was I don't know if it was a good idea to do that with the character of the Mandarin early on, but uh like whatever, like it, I just I think Trevor Slattery, whenever he's there, the whole thing just kind of slows down and everyone's kind of quiet while he just kind of bumbles and, you know, just says the wrong thing. And it's it's just kind of always <laughs> slowed it down. The ridiculousness of that character. Uh, so he's there for a, comic relief. Yeah, but it wasn't it wasn't relief and it wasn't comical. <laughs> I don't know. It just He's kind of like a I thought jerk. the fake death performance was kind of funny when he's talking to the whatever that thing is morris <laughs> and he's oh, like yeah, okay. it's a performance <laughs> i did like that they added a lot of asian and chinese mythology in there with the different yeah. magical creatures like yeah you see dragons you see phoenixes but there were also those other types of things like those lions or uh mm-hmm. the foxes with the different tail like it was really beautiful how much they brought in it was really really cool and yeah and it looks like say- a pokemon that that yeah. one fox i can't remember the what it's called but uh it, there's a pokemon that looks just like that uh. <laughs> the, the monsters too the monsters were genuinely creepy and nasty when they yeah. started flying out and then the huge giant final beast came out i was like whoa okay this thing is legit horrific uh but and- the film didn't get lost in those effects right like they they were these effect driven like that could have been a mess if it was done wrong with this dragon and the the uh, the dark dweller or whatever and then you've got shang chi flying around with the ten rings and his sisters there and like that could have gone terribly wrong it could have turned into a cgi mess uh but for some reason it, but it didn't not in this movie you can hear you can hear the dragon in the sky roaring in my head. sorry there's a big like lightning and thunderstorm out right now you can hear it <laughs> Uh, yeah yeah i loved this movie i definitely give it uh an a plus i really thought it was one of the mcu's best it's a great introduction to new character great honor to asian cinema and asian american actors and uh oh and the music the music was really cool too Mm -hmm. yeah really fun imaginative heart heart uh felt film it was a blast to watch um, you know, his dad uh, is the villain here. I mean, we got to talk about the villain. It's a superhero movie. Uh, I-, I thought he was fine. He He's like a bad guy that I wouldn't say he's redeemable. Like he had to die considering all the terrible things he's done throughout history. But he wasn't like totally unsympathetic. You know, you, you did feel sympathy for him in some ways um, because he's almost just like a misled uh, uh, mourning scorned lover at the point when we see him in this movie. Um, and we do see him have that final moment where he sort of passes on his rings to Shang-Chi. Um, and obviously his legacy lives on through Shang-Chi, even though he obviously passed on some bad things too. But I thought it was a, a villain that maybe didn't have like uh, acceptable uh, motivations, but they weren't totally unsympathetic. It was a very good villain. And it was a villain that it was real trouble. Like that would have been a villain that any of the MCU characters, whether you're, you know, Captain America or Iron Man or like that, that guy would have given anyone trouble because, you know, he has a whole like secret ninja army really behind him too. But then just the rings, like, yeah, he was, he was a tough villain. And so I'm really looking forward now to uh, Shang-Chi being like a really tough Avenger. I'm excited to see where, where he comes into the MCU. Yeah, and we got some hints from that. By the way, I give this a 9 out of 10. I have it in my number one movie of the year. I liked it that much. Um, but yeah. uh, we get a little bit of hint uh, about uh, what where we might see Shang-Chi in the future with the with the Stinger. 
Um, in the mid credit scene, he has a conversation, meets Bruce Banner, uh, meets Carol Danvers. Uh, they're talking about the com- the composition of the rings. None of them know where it came from. Uh, I'm not a big comic book nerd. I'm sure there's videos out there that are speculating on what this might mean for the MCU. But uh, And I'm not going to get into that because I'm not an expert on that. There's Marvel-specific podcasts for that that know way more about it than I do. Um, but I think what we're just seeing between a show like this, between Loki, uh, between you know what if we're just seeing the mcu being opened up to so many possibilities at this point and this really could go in so many different directions and that stinger is just another example of mm-hmm. how uh you know and marvel clearly has plenty of ideas of where they want to take this <laughs> yeah yeah one thing i i should add to that it probably doesn't get talked a lot a lot about when they talk about this movie but this movie had really good pacing like the way they introduce the characters and then they jump into action and then they kind of give a little bit more slow character introduction and then there's more action. And then by the time they're, they're at, you know, the, the, the hidden village and they're just having all these deep, like long character development talks and moments, like the slowness feels really special and it feels really earned. And uh, the memories, the way it plays back and forth with nonlinear storytelling was, it was just so like paced well and and slowed down well and you don't see a lot of those in the marvel movies like marvel movies are very fast they're very linear a lot of times and the fact that this like it really just kind of threw the structure out the window to just really hit you with those emotional moments and take the time it needed to do that i was very impressed like that i was like this is a superhero you know kung fu movie like and yet it's got really hard dramatic moments that don't feel just cheap because oh because it's the dad or it's the mom or it's family or like it feels like real relationships that matter and they did Mm -hmm. a very good job with that and that all helps to ground in the themes of family and seeing their development of the family and the shortcomings of the family through the years and ultimately that crescendos into the climax of jung chi and the legend of the ten rings uh one of the best marvel movies made in history in my opinion um so yeah that's going to do it. Definitely check it out. It'll be on Disney plus soon enough, but if you can go see it in theaters, I would definitely recommend doing that. So uh, that's going to do it for today's episode of the second day film podcast. Uh, uh, Mike, it was nice talking to you as always. Um, what do you say we get back a little sooner here? Because we got a lot of movies coming out. We mentioned it. Many saints of Newark, no time to die. The new bond flick, venom, let there be carnage, Dune, Halloween kills. We've got some other things on the back burner. So uh, what do you say we try and make the break a little shorter next time? <laughs> yeah, I've I've also seen I've seen movies. I, I saw Dear Evan Hansen. Uh, I saw uh, uh, we, I saw another movie. It's not worth reviewing. It was a fine movie, but we don't need to review it anyway. But yeah, <laughs> we're we, always watching things. Oh, we saw Squid Game. We got to talk about Squid Game at some point. That was great. What if? Uh, what if? Yeah, Succession's yeah. coming back. I'm really excited for that. I love Succession. That's coming back this month. So much good stuff. Yeah. And if you guys got anything out there you want us to review, uh, feel free to shout it at us. Uh, hit us up on Facebook at the Second Day Film Podcast. You know how to get us on Twitter. Um, yeah, Check out our old reviews, SoundCloud, iTunes, uh, Apple Music, Spotify. Uh, give us a rating and a review if you can. Or just check out our Facebook page and uh, leave us a note because uh, we always love talking films. So, uh, Mike, thanks for being here. It was nice talking to you as always. Nice talking to you too. We missed you, Evan. Yep, we'll get Evan back in here next time. Uh, but for Mike Nichols, I'm Brandon Champion. Thank you for listening to the Second Day Film Podcast. We'll talk to you next time, and we'll see you.